Now take your Bible and uh, open to John chapter 13. John 13, I'm going to start in verse 18. John chapter 13, verse 18, I do not speak to all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, but it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. And from now on, I'm telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. When Jesus had said these things, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you that the one, one of you will betray me. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. There was reclining on Jesus' breast one of his disciples when, or whom the Lord loved. Simon Peter therefore gestured to him and said to him, Tell us who it is of whom he is speaking. He, leaning back thus on Jesus' breast, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus therefore answered, That it is one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he dipped the morsel, he took it and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And after the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Jesus therefore said to him, What you do, do quickly. Now no one of those who were reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. Some were supposing because Judas had the money box that Jesus was saying to him, buy the things we have need of for the feast, or else that he should give something to the poor. And so after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately, and it was night. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, again, we're thankful for the privilege of gathering uh, together in this building. Uh, We're thankful for the privilege of studying your word, and we pray, Lord, that you might open it to us, that we might again see the rich grace and kindness of your God and our wonderful Savior, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. Go before us this hour, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we come to this uh, study again here in chapter 13, it's a portion of Scripture that gives us an account of uh, one of the most troubling and painful times, I think, in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a picture that describes the last scene in our Lord's life with Judas Iscariot, who is a false prophet or a false uh, uh, apostle uh, before Judas betrays Christ. The only other remaining communication between the two is going to be when Judas gives that kind of smug greeting and then gives that hypocritical kiss that is going to come in just a very short amount of time. Judas Iscariot, as I've told you, is the most despised and notorious traitor in all of human histories, and that's saying quite a bit because history has been full of uh, notorious traitors. But Judas rises above them all. He's the one who betrays the Lord Jesus Christ with a kiss. He he is the one who is indeed a blight on the page of human history. He is the one who the Lord himself said it would have been better if he'd never been born. He's a man who had the blessed privilege of being one of the twelve that had the Lord had chosen to be with him as his closest followers during his earthly ministry. And for three years he had the great privilege of constantly living and traveling with Jesus, observing everything that he did, observing all of his miracles, his healing, his compassion, his grace, his kindness, the outpouring of love that he had towards people uh, whom he came in contact with, yet Judas still chose to betray Christ. 
Again, a man whose treachery has been regarded as the foulest deed ever committed against another man, that's Judas Iscariot. One who lived the greatest tragic life that ever could have been lived. One who has a dark, tragic story, or whose dark, tragic story really reveals the depth of evil in the human heart that is capable to sink to these levels, even under the very best of circumstances. And all through our life, all through our Lord's life, we know that he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, but I think most certainly the events that unfold here in these verses before us have to be singularly and exceptionally bitter time of sorrow for our Lord. Again, the one whom he has chosen, one, one of his uh, apostles, he is going to deliberately become apostate. He is going to deliberately become a traitor and turn our Lord Jesus Christ into his enemies unto his death. So the verses before us not only show the great wickedness, the betrayal of Judas against our Lord, they're going to also put on, fact, uh, on display the full uh, sovereignty of God over these events, even the sovereignty of God over the evil that men do. Because there's nothing in the story that happens that catches the Lord Jesus Christ off guard. He's going to prepare in this text his disciples for what's coming next. He wants them to know what is about to happen. That's why he brings the subject up at this point. That he's going to be betrayed by one of his own. Because if Jesus hadn't in advance exposed the treachery of Judas before Judas betrayed him, then the disciples might have concluded that Jesus was not who he claimed to be. Because otherwise, the thinking would have been, then why would Jesus choose Judas? Perhaps somehow Jesus misjudged Judas's character. Perhaps Jesus was deceived. Uh, perhaps Jesus was some kind of a helpless victim of Judas's unsuspected treachery. But the reality is the very opposite. And Jesus wants to make sure his disciples understand or don't believe that he was caught off guard by what Judas is about to do. So Jesus is going to expose him. Because Judas's betrayal fits right into the sovereign plan of God, God's sovereign plan, God's eternal redemptive plan and purposes uh, for the cross of the, the Lord Jesus Christ, for his crucifixion, because God has already predetermined that all of this is going to take place. In fact, Jesus will tell his disciples that Judas's betrayal fulfills Scripture. And that's the reason why he chose him. And it all fits in, this all fits into the eternal plan of God. And one thing I want you to notice as we work our way through the text is I want you to see the compassion of Christ on display, the repeated times, the repeated opportunities that Judas had to repent and not go the direction that he chose to go on his own, in his own wickedness, and his collusion with Satan. The Lord Jesus Christ is infinitely merciful, even to Judas, even to the very end. Now, you'll remember the context of the story, right? It's Thursday night, the night before the Lord's crucifixion. The Lord is celebrating the Passover with his disciples. The disciples are in a place known as the Upper Room. Judas has already made the bargain with Christ's enemies to betray him for 30 pieces of silver. Judas, however, was unaware where the Passover meal was to be held because you might remember last time I told you the Lord intentionally withheld that information from him. He sent John and Peter in the morning uh, to make all, all the arrangements, but he didn't disclose the location until the evening when they all arrived together at the place there in the, at the night because he didn't want Judas to bring back the chief priests and, and arrest Jesus before the time. So Jesus must take the Passover. He desires to take the Passover. And as we know, he's going to 
turn the, tra- the Passover meal, the last Passover celebration, into the first Lord's Supper. So the Lord has made sure that it, uh, the location is stealth, if you will. Judas doesn't know where it's at. Now back in chapter, uh, or top of the chapter, back in verse 1, you'll remember that John tells us of the tremendous love that Christ has for his own. A love that's unbreakable, a love that's infinite, a love that's eternal, a love that will never come to completion. Verse 1 of the chapter. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, and that he should depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Tremendous truth. And then immediately, just the next breath, John contrasts Jesus' love for his own with Judas's satanic treachery. Verse 2, during the supper, the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. So again, you have love declared and then you have love spurned right back and back to, to back. And then from verses 3 through 17, that demonstration of Christ's love, uh, again, in the context of the apostles arguing amongst themselves who is the greatest, none of them was willing to stoop down and wash the feet of their peers, which was culturally appropriate at the time and something that was expected before a meal was taken together. But Jesus, who's the Lord of glory, the creator of the universe, in an example of utter humility, uh, utter humility, he humbles himself. He humbles himself, he condescends to perform the task that is usually performed by the most uh, lowest of slaves. He serves them because they, were served, they refuse to serve each other. Verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself about. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Again, he is demonstrating his tangible love for them. And again, an example of tangible humility, uh, the same kind of humility and love that Christ demands for those who would follow him. So he demonstrates this, uh, gives this lesson to them on humility. And at the same time, he gives another theology lesson to make sure that the disciples have a correct understanding of who he is and why he has come and the conditions of his first coming, his first advent. He wants to make sure that they have a correct understanding of his messianic mission. Point number, point number one of the theology lesson is that Christ, when he comes the first time in his first advent, he comes not as a conquering king, but he comes as a humble servant. Right? He doesn't come as a conquering king to set up his kingdom. He comes in humiliation. He comes in suffering. And the humiliation of Christ at his first coming, he wants them to understand, isn't going to stop with the foot washing. It's going to go all the way to the cross. Verse 6. So he came to Peter, Simon Peter, and he said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered and said to him, What I do, you do not realize now, but you shall understand hereafter. Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no point with me, or no part with me. So theology lesson number one, or the theology lesson, the point number one, again, the first time Christ comes, he comes in humiliation. Again, the humiliation of the feet washing is just the beginning. If they won't accept the humiliation of the foot washing, then they're certainly not going to accept the humiliation of the cross, which is coming in just a few hours, which they don't know. What I do, you do not realize now, but you shall understand afterward. The second point in the theology lesson that the Lord gives them during this demonstration of the foot washing is the need for spiritual cleansing. It's the need for washing, the need for regeneration. 
the need for renewing by the Holy Spirit, to have our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, cleansed from sin. And the point is that men are only cleansed by the shed blood of Christ. And only those men who are cleansed by the shed blood of Christ have a relationship with him. And that unless Jesus cleanses us from our sin through his shed blood, we have no part in the salvation that he offers. That's why Jesus answers Peter and says, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Again, Peter doesn't quite understand, but he will eventually. Verse 9, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but my hands and my head. Verse 10, Jesus said to him, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean. So again, the point being that those who come by faith to Christ have received a one-time, a once-for-all cleansing of their sin through his shed blood that will occur in just in a few hours upon Calvary's cross. It doesn't need to be repeated. They don't need to get saved again because all who place their faith in Christ are saved already through the shed blood of Christ. So he tells Peter, you're clean. And when he says that, in essence, he's saying, you're forgiven, you're saved. You now share in the redemption which my shed blood merits for you. He who hath bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean. Then verse 10 goes on and says, but not all of you. Not all of you. Verse 11 gives the explanation, for he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. So again, Christ says that because he wants to make sure that everybody understands he's not a victim. Nothing catches him off guard. Nothing catches him by surprise. Because he's God incarnate, he knows all things. He knows exactly who's going to betray him. Verse 12. And so when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, neither is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you're blessed if you do them. That's the call by Christ, the master, the Lord of the universe, the, the Lord of glory, the creator, God incarnate. Again, follow my example. Follow example of my love. Follow my example of humility towards each other. And the point being there, if he out of love, who he is as the creator of the universe, if he out of love is willing to humble himself and serve others, it would be most reasonable that for his followers that they would do likewise. If the Lord of glory would humble himself to serve others, it's most reasonable that his followers would humble themselves in Christ-like service and love towards each other. The battle in the church should never be for the greatest position. The battle in the church should always be for the lowliest position. The battle should be, how can I serve you best? How can I serve you better? Out of Christ-like love. Now the text for this morning, verse 18. The Lord says, I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, but it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread and has lifted up his heel against me. From now on, I am telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. So at this point, the Lord is going to expose the betrayer, Judas, which is going to begin the first step actively to uh, set into motion the Lord's own death. And Judas is going to be dead before dawn. He's going to murder himself in the middle of the night. He's going to go out and hang himself. He'll, He'll be dead before Jesus even goes to trial with Pilate. 
John MacArthur says this. He says, Judas never saw another day. Jesus and Judas are extreme opposites. The perfectly holy one and the utterly wretched one. The king of heaven and the hell-bound reprobate. The sinless son of God and the singular sinning son of Simon. The great lover of sinners and the sinner who hated the Lord. Judas is the greatest example of lost opportunity that ever existed. He had, like the rest, left all to follow Jesus into the kingdom. His motivations were all wrong. He was motivated, as it turns out, to be by greed and avarice and ambition and material things and money. He developed into the most competent and clever, artful hypocrite. Under the daily influence of the Lord Jesus, he became the opposite of the other eleven. They became saints. He became a son of hell, conniving, a conniving tool of Satan. That's a pretty astute observation, right? Under the daily influence of the Lord Jesus Christ, he became the very opposite of all the other eleven. Instead of becoming a saint, he becomes a conniving tool of the devil. Now I'm going to borrow, as we work our way through the text, I'm going to borrow a, a, an outline uh, to put over top because it will help you take notes what people keep telling me. So I'm trying to work hard at this. But here we go. The first heading, the trees and anticipated. The trees and anticipated. If you want to write that down, that's great. If not, that's fine with me too. Verse 18. Again, the Lord says, I don't speak to all of you. I know the one whom I've chosen, that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my eats bread, or my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Again, when the Lord is betrayed and arrested early on Friday, he wants to make sure Again, the disciples know that he's no victim. He is not at all surprised by Judas's treachery. I do not speak of all of you. And again, in the context of those being blessed in verse 17, in the context of verse 10, when he says, you're clean. I do not speak to all of you. I know the ones whom I've chosen. And it's actually in the middle voice, so it's the ones I have chosen for myself is really more technically the way it should be written. Jesus knows them. He knows them now. He knew them at the very beginning when he initially chose them. He knew who they were. He knew what kind of men they were. He knew what was true of all of them, even what was true with respect to Judas. When he says, I know the ones, I'm, the ones who I have chosen, or the ones I have chosen, he's not speaking about election. He's just speaking very clearly about the ones I've chosen to be my apostles, my, my disciples, as it says in Luke chapter 6, verse 13 through 16. He knew exactly what he was doing when he chose these men to be his followers, even the one who betrayed him. Because back in John chapter 6, verse 70, the Lord said, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil, Diabolos? one who's prone to slander, one who accuses falsely. I know the ones I've chosen. Again, I've not made a mistake. But it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. It is the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. It's a quote out of Psalm 41, verse 9. that says, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. It's a psalm of David. And in the context, David is lamenting the betrayal of a close, trusted companion, one who often shared a meal with him, which again is a symbol of intimate fellowship, friendship. Thought by most to be a reference to Ahithophel out of uh, 2 Samuel 15, 31. When David's son Absalom rises up against David and then drives David out of Jerusalem. Ahithophel was one of David's closest and most 
trusted friends at one time and an advisor. Again, who the two often took meals together. And he turns against David and becomes Absalom's counselor. And obviously to betray someone who's a close friend is absolutely unthinkable, but that's what Ahithophel does. Ahithophel turns against David, he counsels Absalom, and David obviously greatly feared that counsel from Ahithophel because he feared his wisdom. He knew he was a, a wise man. But then, if you remember the story, the rebel prince Absalom, he disregards the advice completely. And Ahithophel, the text of the scripture says in 2 Samuel 17, he goes home, he puts his affairs in orders, and he hangs himself. Just as Judas is going to do when he betrays Jesus. So the parallel there between Ahithophel and Judas is particularly strong. I know the ones I have chosen, but it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. And again, just like with David, the anguish that must have filled the Lord Jesus' heart by the personal betrayal of Judas had to have been great. As there probably aren't many things more troubling in a person's life, more difficult than any of our lives, than when a close friend, a companion, someone whom we trust, someone whom we love, someone whom we live life with, intimately in close fellowship, maliciously, falsely turns against us. It's among the most difficult things in life when someone's trust has been violated, when someone whom you love betrays you. And that's what's going on here. I know the ones I've chosen, but it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. Not just, I think, is the Lord just looking back on uh, uh, Psalm 41, but I think he's also looking at uh, David in, in his dark days of Absalom's revolt out of Psalm 55, verse 12. Psalm 55, verse 12, David says, For it is not an enemy who has reproached me, then I could bear it, nor is it the one who hates me, who has exhaust, exalted himself against me, then I could hide myself from him. But it is you, a man my equal, my companion, my familiar friend, he who had sweet, we who had sweet fellowship together, walked in the house of God in the throng. Dropping down to verse 20 of that chapter, it says, He has put forth his hands against those who are at peace with him. He has violated his covenant. His speech was smoother than butter, but his heart was war. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. The act of betrayal. When Jesus says, I know the ones whom I've chosen, but is that scripture may be fulfilled? Again, it also points to Zechariah's prophecy in Zechariah 11, verse 12. And I said, it is good to them. If it's good in your sight, give me my wages. But if not, never mind. So they weighed out 30 shekels of silver as my wages. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, that the magnificent price at which I was valued by them. So I took the 30 shekels of silver, threw them to the potter, in the house of the Lord. And again, that's exactly what happens with Judas when he betrays the Lord for 30 pieces of silver. He's under intense pressure of the guilt of his crime against the Lord. He takes those 30 pieces of silver he got from the Jewish religious leader and goes and throws them down on the temple floor. And the scripture says that he goes out and hangs himself. The Jews take that money, that blood money, and they go out and purchase a potter's field, again, fulfilling perfectly the details of Zechariah's prophecy. I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, but it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. So again, the purpose of Jesus exposing Judas at this moment is to make sure that when the treachery happens, the disciples are somewhat prepared for it. Again, they need to understand that Jesus is not caught off guard. 
that Jesus is in absolute control of all the events surrounding his death. Jesus is not a victim of Judas's evil. He's not at the mercy of some wretched sinner, some wretched individual. When Jesus said this all happened so that the scripture may be fulfilled, he is affirming that all the events that are about to unfold from this point forward are, again, all part of the divine plan, all part of God's divine purpose. Again, the Lord is saying, I know Judas is going to betray me. I I know who he is. I know he's a traitor. I know he's a hypocrite. But I chose him knowing that. A couple writers, a couple commentators actually point out here that Jesus is in this moment fulfilling the role of the prophet. Right? He's one who's speaking forth with absolute divine knowledge. He's one who's foretelling the future. He's the one who is foretold throughout the Bible prophecies. It's his life, right? So he, again, Jesus is testifying to the uh, an estimable value of the scripture. Believe what the scripture says because it's going to happen exactly as the scripture says. Peter, making this observation and a little bit later uh, in Acts chapter 2, verse 22, says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus of the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, and you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. It's all part of the plan. It's all part of the plan. It's all part of the predetermined redemptive plan, the foreknowledge of God, that Jesus is going to leave glory, he's going to come to earth, he's going to incarnate, he's going to put on our flesh, he's going to suffer and die. It's part of the plan. He's not a victim of circumstances. But he comes out of God's love for a lost, sinful world. And Christ comes out of his love for lost, sinful men. And again, he comes in obedience to the eternal decree of God to provide salvation for men. So again, all these events fulfill scripture. Jesus, again, the suffering servant. Out of Isaiah 53, the one who is despised, forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. The one who our griefs himself bore and our sorrows he carried. The one stricken, smitten of God, afflicted, pierced through for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Jesus is no victim of a fool's treachery. He's no victim of the betrayer. Because Judas's betrayal of the Lord Jesus Christ was written down on the pages of Scripture ages before it came to pass. And God makes no man a sinner. It's absolutely inconsistent with the character and the nature of God. James 1 verse 3 says, God cannot be tempted with evil and he tempts no one. Judas betrays Christ of his own volition, his own choice. The role that Judas plays in the death of Christ was not forced upon him. It wasn't against his will. It was Judas's own evil that was the seedbed in which the deed of betraying Christ was hatched. Judas does what he does willingly, freely, by his own wicked choice. Judas repeatedly, willingly rejected the genuine offer of salvation. He willingly rejected Christ and Christ's mercy, Christ's love. Judas had every opportunity there was to turn away from sin. Yet he willingly rejected that and he fulfilled the evil of his own heart. I mean, just think about the warnings that he had to have listened to about the judgment of sin, the judgment on his own sin. And Judas rejected Christ's repeated warnings. I just read it, but I'll read it again. John 6 and 70, Jesus answered them, Did I not myself choose you and the twelve, yet one of you is a devil? He says it in the 
area where Judas is. Judas hears that. It's a warning. Matthew 26, verse 24, the Son of Man is to go, uh, just as it is written of him, and woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better, would have been good for that man if he would not been born. Again, it's another gracious warning. And just in the near context here, it was uh, Jesus when he said that not all the disciples were spiritually clean back up in verse 10. Uh, again, Judas was there with that warning. But he resolutely hardened his heart and refused to repent. He resolutely rejected the grace that was offered to him through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He rejected that grace on a personal level. He rejected it all. And Judas makes his own decision to betray Christ. And Judas chooses to align himself with the evil one. He chooses to be the agent of the supreme fallen angel, once known as Lucifer, who's now known as Satan. He chooses to actively join in and participate in wickedness. He's the one who opened himself up to the ruler of darkness. He's the one who chose to become an agent of hell, all the way down to the core of his being, again, being an utter agent of evil. Again, perhaps to the extent of no other human being who has ever lived was the wickedness of Judas and his betrayal of Christ. So Judas's role in the divine plan was not something apart from Judas's own desire. One writer says this, Judas was no robot programmed to betray Jesus against his will. Judas freely chose to do that and is fully accountable for his actions. And that's true. He's no robot. He did what he did because that was the evil in his heart. One author writes this, he says, Judas's malicious decision to betray Christ was used by God in fulfilling Christ's gracious mission of redemption. An unholy man in the hands of a holy God was used to accomplish a holy purpose. And I'm going to stop and say we probably ought to remember that. Evil is not sovereign. Satan is not sovereign. Wicked men, did I not read that out of the Psalms this morning? Evil men are not sovereign. God is. God will rule. God will reign. God will judge justly the evil of wicked men and nations. You can go to bed at night and not worry. You're not in charge. I'm not in charge. God is in charge. He's perfect, just, righteous, holy. And God, because of his sovereign goodness, takes an unholy man in the hands of a holy God, and he will use Judas's betrayal to accomplish the greatest good for the greatest amount of people through the redemption found in the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ on the coming day on Calvary's cross. That's an encouraging note. God is in charge. And what you have here, right side by side, again, often as you do in John, you have God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, or culpability, I guess, in this case. The tension in in, in the scripture that you can't remove. God's sovereignty, man's responsibility, and any time you try to remove that tension, you end up in theological error and inaccuracy. When the plans and purposes of God are being carried out, and at the same time you have the wickedness of sinful men on display being worked out, that is what the theologians call the doctrine of concurrence. Concurrence. Two things happening at the same time. Again, divine sovereignty, human responsibility side by side. And again, God's not the author of evil. He's not the originator of evil or sin, but God has ordained whatever has Whatever comes to pass, and God in his sovereignty uses man's willful evil to accomplish God's good purposes and will. Again, to bring out his ultimate good 
for the glory of his name. Again, it's the doctrine of concurrence. And one more thing. I just referenced it just uh, a moment ago. When Jesus makes that statement in Matthew 26, verse 24, the Son of Man is going to go, just as is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. That expression maintains completely the guilt and the responsibility and establishes the doom of Judas. He bears his guilt. He bears his responsibility. It declares his eternal doom. Judas faces such a terrifying eternal reality in hell, it would have been infinitely better for him if he had never been born. That's what Jesus is saying. But he was, and he made the choice to betray Christ, therefore he remains fully responsible for his actions. So again, Judas makes his choice. Judas is the source of his own damnation, therefore. And yet somehow this all fits within the perfect plan of God who controls all events. Yet again, God makes no man a sinner, but in his sovereignty using even the wickedness of men to accomplish his good purposes. And again, in the context of that Matthew 26 passage, when Jesus said it would have been good for this man if he'd never been born, he makes that statement in the presence of Judas because according to verse 25 of that chapter, Judas hadn't left yet. Therefore, listen, that's just another terrifying word of warning of judgment to come. It is another gracious, final gracious appeal for Judas to repent, turn to Christ before it's too late. Jesus continues to make these offers to Judas to repentance, to come to faith in Christ. Jesus says, I do not speak of all of you, but I know the ones whom I've chosen. That the scripture may be fulfilled. And look what it says here at the end of this next sentence. He who eats my bread has, here it is, lifted up his heel against me. He has lifted up his heel against me. It wasn't enough that Judas wanted to sell Jesus for money, the 30 pieces of silver, which is the price of a slave. He wanted to inflict pain upon Christ. He wanted to crush him. That term, lifted up his heel, portrays brutal violence. It's the raising up of a heel of someone to stomp your adversary into oblivion. It has the picture of he's already wounded, your adversary's already wounded, he's, he's lying there injured on the ground, and your one-time friend raises his heel of his boot and he viciously crushes you, presses it down against your neck. He wants to do him violence. Verse 19. From now on, I'm telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am. Now the next word, he, most of your versions, it should be italicized because it's not there in the original. I'm telling you before it comes to pass so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am. It's another declaration of deity. It's a declaration of, 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 of uh, it's a use of the name of I am, the, the divine name of God out of uh, Exodus chapter 3. From now on, I am telling you before it comes to pass. From now on, I'm going to tell you the future. 
so that in the near future, in the distant future, you can look back and you can remember I told you the truth of what was to happen before it happened. I I told you the events before they actually unfolded. So that when they do occur, you may believe that I am. And again, he does it out of the kindness of his heart. He does it out of his love for them. He knows that when the treachery of Judas comes to pass, there's going to be a tendency on the part of the disciples to be so upset that it might undermine their faith. And again, they might be tempted to think that the Lord is some kind of a victim. So the Lord, out of his love for them, out of his care for them, he says, I know from now on I am telling you before it comes to pass so that when it does occur, you will have a proper understanding of who I am. You'll have a proper understanding of who I am and you'll believe that I am. And you'll believe that what looks like defeat is actually victory in the eternal plan. And instead of the apostles stumbling at the apostasy of the one of their own who betrays Christ, that declaration of the Lord of what is happening in advance is going to be a source of encouragement and strength for them as they go on. It's going to encourage their faith. Knowing that everything that they're partakers of, the events of, was something that was foretold in the scripture long before. And they just happened to have the great privilege of being there that evening witnessing all these events unfold. The treason anticipated. Number two, the treason declared. Treason declared. Verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me. And he who receives me, receives him who sent me. When Jesus said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. Now, at first look, verse 20 might seem a bit out of context. That maybe it doesn't have a connection with what has just been said. But the truth is, it fits in here quite well. Because what the Lord wants his disciples to understand in the midst of the failure of one of their own in the inner circle, this unbelievable act of betrayal that's going to eventually, in the morrow, lead to the death of the Lord, he wants them to know that their ministry and their mission is not over. He wants them to know that no matter what happens, the task that Christ has given them still stands. So in essence, though one of your number may stumble and fall and be unfaithful, you persevere. You persevere. You don't fear. You remember the dignity of your office. You remember the charge that I have given you to go and preach the gospel. So this verse 20 is there because he wants them to know that they are still to represent him. They are his ambassadors of grace. They are still apostles. They are the sent ones. They have the full authority of the person who has sent him. So verse 20 is really the Lord turning their attention away from the betrayal and the betrayer back to him and back to the fact that they have a mission that they've been sent to do, and that is to preach. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send, in the context, I think to preach the gospel, receives me. And again, you're my representatives, right? Nothing's changed. He who receives me receives him who sent me. And, of course, that would be God the Father. So, in essence, again, it's persevere, press on. Don't, don't be ashamed of your calling, however unworthy some of you, uh, some of those in your midst might act, no matter what happens. It doesn't alter your call or lower, lower your commission, just like in our context, right? 
Uh, there's hypocrites everywhere in the church. It doesn't change what we do in the church. There's all kinds of false professors, false prophets, false teachers. It doesn't change the true commission, the true message. So again, the Lord knows what's coming. Christ is going to be crucified. Judas is going to betray him. And from the disciples' perspective, the whole thing could be seemingly coming apart, crashing down. The Lord's trying to encourage them. Keep the faith. Be prepared for what's coming. Nothing has changed. It's all part of the plan. Therefore, don't change the course. And again, a lesson that we would all do well to learn. No matter what kind of troubles come our way, no matter what kind of satanic opposition we run into, no matter what frustrations or disappointments, nothing can alter or change the mission that we've been given to take the gospel to the nations. Matthew 28, verse 18, Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I command you. And, lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. The one who has all authority, the sovereign, doesn't matter what happens. The command is still the same. Paul makes that same declaration in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were entreating through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We're ambassadors of the sovereign sent out by the Lord Jesus Christ, who was sent into this world out of the love for the, the, the love the Father had for this world. And again, this fact that you are still my apostles, still my disciples, still going to proclaim the, the gospel was to encourage them at this moment, uh, at this time of difficulty. He is making sure that they understand that he still identifies with them and, and they identify with him and they are both bound by the will of the Father. And so you need to persevere and go forth. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me and he who receives me receives him who sent me. Verse 21, when Jesus had said this, or after saying these things, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. Talked about this word trouble before, terrasso, means to agitate, shake, stir up, cause inward commotion, take away calmness, render anxious or distressed. It's a strong Word, it's used figuratively to speak of severe mental and spiritual agitation, mental agony, turmoil, disturbed, upset, unsettled, even horrified is the idea behind the word. It was a word that was used to describe the terror of the disciples when they saw the Lord walking on water in Matthew 14, 26. It's the word that was used to describe the fear that Zacharias experienced when the angel Gabriel came to him and appeared to him in the temple, Luke 1, verse 12. Same word for the fear the disciples had when they saw Jesus appear to them after the resurrection, Luke 24, verse 38. And it's the same word, troubled, that was used to describe the deep anguish of Jesus' soul when Lazarus was dead in his tomb in John 11, verse 33. Jesus became troubled in spirit. One writer says this, Jesus was troubled Because of the unrequited love of Judas, he was troubled because of the ingratitude of Judas's heart. He was troubled because he had deep hatred of sin and was sitting right next to him, sin incarnate. He was troubled with a shrinking from contact with the one about to betray him. He was troubled because he knew of this one's eternal destiny in hell. 
He was troubled because he could see with the omnipotent, his omnipotent eye Satan moving around Judas. He was troubled because he had a knowledge of the sin of the betrayer and the terror of his eternal punishment. He was troubled because he sensed all that sin and death meant. He was troubled because he had an inner awareness that Judas was a classic illustration of the wretchedness of sin, sin which he would have to bear in his own body on the next day, sin for which he would be made responsible, and sin for which he would die. Jesus became troubled in spirit. Jesus became troubled in spirit, then it says he testified. He bore witness. It's an important word because it's only used about three times in the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John uses it 33 times. The the word means to make a public declaration, an open declaration, a, a great announcement. Jesus became troubled in his spirit and testified, saying, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. One of you who is sitting with me right now at this table, one of you whom I have loved with a perfect eternal love, one of you whose feet I have just washed, one of you who has been given the high calling to be my representative and my ambassador, one of you has had the privilege of walking with me and, and, and knowing me intimately over the last three years, being my constant compassion, one of you will betray me. And the word betray, paradidomai, just means to give into the hands of another, to, 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 to deliver up one into the custody, to be judged, condemned, scourged, tormented, put to death. One of you will betray me. One of you will turn me over to the hands of my enemy. Jesus became troubled in spirit. He testified and said, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you, one of you will betray me. You'd have to imagine at that this moment, uh, the 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 disciples had to be in absolute, complete, utter shock. Which takes us to the next point. Treason anticipated, treason declared, now the twelve are astonished. Verse 22. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. There was reclining on Jesus' breast one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter therefore gestured to him and said, Tell us who it is of whom he is speaking. He, leaning back thus on Jesus' breast, said to him, Lord, who is it? Now again, obviously there are many people who hated Jesus Christ. He had many enemies. All the religious leaders wanted him dead. But to think that one of his closest friends, one of the twelve, would betray him was an absolutely shocking and unbelievable statement. Matthew, in his version of this account, says this, Matthew 26, or 26, verse 21, and as they were eating, he said, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me, verse 22, it says, and being deeply grieved, that each one began to sing to him, surely not I, Lord. None of the eleven knew who the betrayer was. And it really is at this moment somewhat of a tremendous act of mercy and kindness on Christ's part not to immediately expose him, to expose Judas outright. Because again, I still think he's trying to put pressure on Judas to repent. He still at this late hour wants Judas to turn away from his evil, his wickedness, even at this moment fall at Jesus' feet in repentance and receive pardon. 
Again, out of the Matthew 26 version, one of you will betray me. Again, it had to have been like a bombshell going off in the room. And being deeply grieved, each one began to say, Surely not I, Lord. The word deeply grieved there means distressed, sorrowful. Suggesting perhaps they were even moved to the point of tears. Each one began saying, Surely not I, Lord. Jesus becomes troubled in spirit. He testifies and says, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples begin looking at one another at a loss to which one it was uh, who he was speaking. Again, the eleven don't know. They don't know because Judas is the ultimate, the ultimate hypocrite. And Judas perhaps would be the least suspected. And he was the treasurer of the group. Killed the money bag. He was looked upon by the rest of the group as one who had integrity. Perhaps they thought him to be beyond reproach. On top of that, Edersheim, who's the Jewish historian and scholar, points out that at the Passover meal, Judas sat to the left of Jesus at the table, which he says is a place reserved for one with great honor. So at the surface, there's no reason to expect Judas whatsoever. And still further, Jesus never treated Judas any different than he treated the other 11 even though Jesus knew that Judas would ultimately betray him. Jesus still showed Jesus, or still, Jesus still showed Judas the utmost grace, kindness, gentleness, compassion, love, respect, and all of his interaction with him, again, as he did for the other 11. Again, no one has any idea it's Judas. No one has any idea it's going to be Judas is the one who will betray the Lord. So again, at the pronouncement of the Lord Jesus that one is going to betray him, there has to be a tremendous amount of grief and agony. And each of the disciples are asking themselves, who might it be? And each one, fearful of their own deceitfulness of their own heart, except Judas. There has to be a tremendous amount of conviction in the room with the rest. A genuine distrust of their own sinful heart which is always a good place to be because the major problem with people who are caught up in sin or get taken away by sin is they do not understand the power of indwelling sin. Jeremiah understood the power of indwelling sin. He understood the depth of his depravity when he says in Jeremiah 17:9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it. A genuine distrust in self is always a good place to be. Don't trust your heart. Don't listen to your feelings. We say that around here a lot. You need to speak to yourself the truth, not listen to yourself. Your heart will deceive you. No, no, you don't understand. No, I understand very well. The heart is deceitfully wicked. Who can know it? The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know who he was speaking. Verse 23 There was reclining on Jesus' breast or reclining at the table on Jesus' side one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in my house, and those of you who have, you've seen, I like wood, I like wood reliefs, I like wood carving, and I have a wonderful wood relief that I brought back from Brazil on a trip I took there one time, and it took, it depicts uh, Leonardo da Vinci's famous painting of the Last Supper. You know, all the fellows are lined up like that, seated next to each other, one right after another. It's a tremendous piece of artwork, but it's historically inaccurate, just like da Vinci's painting. 
And instead of men sitting together like this, like for a photo op, everybody on one side of the table, they actually sat at a low U-shaped table, and they kind of leaned at their left elbows, and their feet were going out uh, from the table so they could eat with their right hand. Jesus would have been at the bottom of the U or the top, however you want to look at it, and John would have been to his right. Therefore, it would have been easy for him to lean over and, and uh, back on Jesus' chest and whisper into his ear, Lord, who is it, as he does in verse 25. Peter is sitting across from John so he could gesture to him to find out who the betrayer was because Judas, again, most likely is sitting at Jesus' left in the seat of honor. Again, it's the last, the one last gesture of love of Jesus towards Judas, the betrayer. And after Jesus announced that one of the twelve would betray him, Judas asks back in the Matthew 26 version, it says, Surely not I, Rabbi. And it's interesting because all the other fellows say, surely not I, Lord. But Jesus says, surely not I, Rabbi. And Jesus replied, you've said it yourself. Now that conversation had to have been whispered in private. As again, they're leaning back on on each other. Jesus is leaning back towards Judas. Otherwise, the other disciples would have known that that Judas was the betrayer and would not have thought, as verses 28 and 29 report, that Jesus had either sent Jesus out to buy or Judas out to buy some food or or to give some funds to the poor. So there was reclining on Jesus' breast or reclining at the table on Jesus' side, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. That's John. John never names himself in the gospel. He always refers to himself as the one whom Jesus loved. And John has a love for Christ. And John's love for Christ, again, stands in stark contrast to Judas and his intense hatred of Christ. Verse 24, Simon Peter therefore gestured to him and said to him, Tell us who it is of whom he is speaking. And just to take a breath and a quick uh, side note uh, for our Roman Catholic friends, just read what it says there. Uh, Our Roman Catholic friends who wrongly believe that Peter is the head of the church. Just an observation. That Peter is so far away from Jesus, he has to go through John for John to be his intercessor to get to Jesus. All right? Just an observation there in the text. Simon Peter therefore gestured to him and said to him, Tell us who it is of whom he is speaking. Verse 25, he, leaning back on Jesus' breast, said to him, Lord, who is it? Again, no one has a clue. Which again just shows you how good of a hypocrite Judas really was. Judas is not suspected by any of the other disciples. Judas had allowed Jesus to wash his feet. And now Judas is sitting at the table during the Passover meal, which is tremendously significant in the life of the Jew. For each person there participate, uh, who is participating is being reminded of God's provision for sinners. That not only God passed over the homes of those covered in obedience with blood, the shed blood of the lamb, uh, sparing the life of the firstborn during Israel's stay in captivity in Egypt, but somewhere in that picture of the lamb sacrificed was a promise that God would one day send the ultimate Passover lamb who would come and once for all take care of sin. And when the participant at the Passover meal received the piece of bread dipped from the leader there again at that Passover dinner, he was in, he was in essence acknowledging his own sin, his own need of a savior, and he was reaffirming his faith in God's promise that he would send Messiah who would take away sin by the sacrifice of himself, each one by partaking, professing their willingness to receive the salvation that God offered.
Treason anticipated. Treason declared. The twelve are astonished. Now, lastly, the traitor is going to be addressed. Lord, who is it? Jesus, verse 26, therefore answered, that it is the one from whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took it, gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Verse 27, and after the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Jesus therefore said to him, what you do, do quickly. Now again, at this point, the men still don't know exactly what's going on. The morsel would have been a piece of bread that was taken, dipped into a large bowl of basically paste made up of raisins and figs and dates and such, all mashed or somehow cut up together. Perhaps some vinegar, some salt, some kind of herbs together. And they'd mix this all up together and they would take unleavened bread. They would eat that. They would dip it into this mixture as part of the Passover dinner before they actually ate the Passover lamb. And the first piece of bread was always given to the guest of honor. And Judas had been allowed by our Lord to be in that position on his left side where the honored guest would sit. And Christ gives the first piece of bread to Judas, who again is sitting at a place of honor right alongside Jesus to his left with John on the other side, also in a place of honor. But the highest honor goes to, to Judas. The great teacher expositor Dwight Pentecost says this, He describes the scene this way. He says it was customary to offer the first piece to the most honored guest at the feast. Judas had been placed on our Lord's left, though for he shared with John the places of honor. In fact, the place of highest honor had been given to Judas. This was an evidence of the love and grace of the Lord, who knew what Judas's heart, who knew what was in Judas's heart before the seats were assigned around the table. Further, it is to be noted, he says, that since the giving of bread was, in effect, an offer of salvation, Christ was offering forgiveness to Judas if he would accept the offered salvation and put his faith in him. This, he says, was grace exemplified. Perhaps no greater demonstration of love and the grace of Christ can be found anywhere in the scripture than in the scene for the one who betrayed him was offering the betrayer forgiveness of sin, if he would accept it. Jesus took the bread, and you can go back and look at this next statement because it's true. Judas took the bread, but there is no record that he ate the bread as a sign of acceptance of the Messiah's offer of salvation. Pentecost says, rather, it seems that the moment he took the bread, Satan entered into him, as it says in verse 27. He rejected the gracious offer of salvation. John, he says, noted it was night, verse 30, but the night was... Without was not as dark as the night within the heart of Judas, for Christ had offered himself as Judas's servant to provide forgiveness of sin, but Christ's gracious offer was rejected. Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to whom I be, or who he is speaking. Lord, it is I, Jesus, therefore answered, the one whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took it, gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And as one commentator now notes, hell just showed up. Verse 27. 
After the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Jesus therefore said to him, what do you do to quickly? It's a command by the sovereign. It's a command by Christ to carry out the act of betrayal quickly because time is short. Again, it's another declaration of the fact that Jesus is in absolute control of every detail, every detail of his death. Proving again the statement the Lord made back in John chapter 10, verse 18, no one has taken my life away from me. I lay it down on my own initiative. I have the authority to lay it down and I have the authority to take it up again. Again, Judas is not going to see another day. Murdered by his own hand, he'll be dead before Jesus faces his trial before Pilate. And although Jesus dies on Calvary's cross, we know the story that he rises victoriously from the grave, defeating sin and death and the devil. And Judas is damned to eternal hell by his own action, by his own rejection of God's mercy through Christ, by his wicked betrayal of the Savior. And he is, and he will, suffer eternally because of that rejection of God's mercy through Christ. Again, according to verse 2, the devil had already put into Judas's heart to do this. And again, Judas is a willing participant in this grotesque evil. After the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. It's a command because Jesus wants Judas gone. Verse 28. Now, no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. Again, they don't know why Jesus sent Judas away. They didn't hear the private conversation between the two. Verse 29. For some were supposing, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus was saying to him, buy the things we have need for the feast, or else that he should go give something to the poor. Verse 30. So after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately. Again, Judas has to leave because he's been commanded by the sovereign to do so. And I will bet you that Judas was more than glad to get out of there because he's now just been exposed. So after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately, and it was night, John says. And for Judas, it's going to be a dark night forever. He's going to spend eternity in darkness, in a place of weeping, wailing, gnashing of teeth, a place of eternal regret. And this man, Judas, forever will experience more regret than anybody else who occupies hell because he rejected the grace and mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ all the way to the end. What an utter, incalculable, eternal disaster is Judas Iscariot and his actions. He didn't sell Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. He sold his own soul to the devil for 30 pieces of silver. No greater example of the folly of lost opportunity. No greater example of the wasted privilege of knowing the truth, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. But then in the vileness of spiritual betrayal, turning away from him and turning against him. But then the power and the sovereignty of God on display, as God will use even the evil of Judas Iscariot and the delivering of Jesus Christ over his, 
over to his enemies to the death on Calvary's cross for God's own glory, for his people's own good, those who love the Lord Jesus Christ and place their faith and trust in him. Amen. Our Father and our God, we're thankful for this look into this 13th chapter, into this most grievous account of the betrayal of Jesus by Judas. What horrific, what a horrific mistake this man made. But we're thankful that we have your word that exposes truth, exposes hearts. We're thankful that the deception of Judas is not the end of the story. It's the triumph of Christ, and you are God, who in your sovereignty uses evil and overcomes evil with the victory of good and eternal life for those who repent and place their faith in Christ. We therefore exalt you, our God, and thankful for your mercy, for your predetermined plan to send Christ, and for Christ's willingness to come out of the tremendous love that you both have for us as sinful, wicked men. May we walk away from this time in this portion of scripture ever increasingly loving you our God and Christ our Savior for the great compassion that you show to sinful men over and over and over and over again because you desire that none would perish but come to a knowledge of the truth and the only way to come to a knowledge of the truth is to be exposed to that truth and that's indeed what you have allowed us to do this hour sitting under your word we love you and we bless you in Christ's name amen